St. Andrew's Day, marked by many to be the start of the Christmas season, is a national holiday in Scotland and Romania, but is celebrated throughout the world. In Germany, the feast day is called Andreas Nacht, in Poland, Andrzejewski, while in Austria it's known as Andreas Gebet. Held on November 30th, the feast day of St. Andrew's is marked as a day when prophecy is more easily decoded. When wolves can talk, and when the creatures of the night roam in far greater numbers than usual. In parts of Eastern Europe, it is said that on St. Andrew's Eve, young women may glimpse their future husbands by binding the magic of the season with small ceremonies. A Polish ceremony involved heating wax from a candle and pouring the wax through a keyhole into a basin of cold water. There, in the shimmering liquid, the face of the young woman's future mate would, if all was done correctly, become visible. In Romania, as the day turned into evening, wise villagers placed garlic, witch herbs, and iron around doors and windows. Little could force the village folk to leave their homes, as it was believed that St. Andrew's Day marked the beginning of a rise in vampires haunting the lanes and deserted roads of the country. It's said that at crossroads, graveyards, and other sites of arcane power, that the undead would fight amongst themselves and tell Cockrow, unless an unlucky traveler caught their attention. The name of St. Andrews is used to ward off wolves, who, because of the day, are allowed to eat as many animals as they wish. St. Andrew's Day also gives wolves the ability to talk to humans, though hearing the wise talk of the predators has a great price. Those who hear wolves talk are fated to die within a year. time of year, my friend. Tax season? God, no. Thank the gods. It's Christmas time again. That time of giving and sharing and maybe a little overspending and a little overeating. Yes, it is. But I just want to say, we got to respect the bird, Rock. Yeah. <laughs> Here it comes. You do love you some Thanksgiving. I do. And I'd just like to put forth to all you lovely listeners out there that may be putting your Christmas trees up before Thanksgiving. It's not right, people. You got to respect the bird. For he doth be a delicious bird. And his sides doth be amazing. The potatoes and all the damn gravy. The pies, the buns, mm-hmm. the green bean casserole. Shout out to Thanksgiving. Mm, I'm with you, my brother. I love Christmas, but I do recall a time when it only encompassed the month of December. Well, it's not called the holiday season for nothing. Are we done with our rant? Are you done with your rant, you mean? <laughs> I am, good sir. Hello to all you lovely people out there in the halls decked with boughs of holly. I'm Rock, and this is my co-host Max, and we're going to be your guides as we traverse the halls of all things supernatural here at Nightmares and Daydreams. That we will. Rock and I are going to debate and discuss our way through all things paranormal, 
legendary and monstrous. And there was one other thing. Mm-hmm. Fun. Yes, fun. Fun. Yes. You always forget fun. <laughs> I never forget it. And as we always say, Max, fun is super important. But do you want to know it's not funny? What's that? Being on the naughty list and getting coal in your stocking. That kind of sucks. Seriously, I can speak from experience. That's not fun at all. Same. But I will say it's nothing compared to being stuffed in a bag by a goat-like devil, beaten with birch branches, and dragged to hell. All for misbehaving. Talk about an overreaction. You know, take the coals as opposed to the whole devil kidnapping, being dragged to hell thing. Thanks. Same here. So I'm talking about Krampus, obviously. Obviously. We're not really going to focus on Krampus, seeing that he's been in movies, games, all sorts of media in recent years. Yeah, it's been a veritable Krampus fest. He's everywhere. You know, I I read about him years ago when I was a kid, and I was kind of horrified. Yeah, same. Those Austrians don't mess around. No, they don't. And I recall feeling like, yeah, we believe in Rudolph and Santa down here in Texas, so I'm going to kind of forget about you. (laughs) I have to say, though, I've always loved the legend of Krampus. It's because you're wicked. Very true. Guilty. So, you know, I forgot about him, Max. Then I saw an episode of The Venture Brothers. And boom, and there he was again, doing various bad Krampus-like things. <laughs> I love that show. But as some of our listeners out there know, Krampus is not the only dark aspect of the Christmas holiday. The Yule season is during the hard, dark winter months, when many thought the old gods were roaming the long nights. And let's be honest, the lights from candles, hearths, torches, offered scant protection and very little comfort. The deep dark of winter was believed to hide the malevolent creatures of the night. Witches flew the skies, ghosts haunted their old homes, imps and goblins roamed the countryside, and vampires prowled the lanes. Werebeasts and packs of spectral hounds haunted the moors and night skies. Yes, indeed. Many legends tell of spectral packs of hounds, called Gabriel hounds in England, roaming the countryside looking for foolish travelers out at night. And this is pretty much a take on the wild hunt. So many tales of the Wild Hunt. Yep. You know, in the Witcher 3 video game, Max, they have some great Wild Hunt storylines going on. I've been trying to get you to play that game. It's like 20 (laughs) years old now. (laughs) I know you're excited about the new Netflix show, December 20th. I think we can wait. Oh, man. Max, I literally cannot wait. I've heard that the battle scenes just make Game of Thrones look like drunks fighting. It's going to be amazing. From what I understand, that actually was drunks fighting. (laughs) So in Wells, the leader of the Wild Hunt is called Gwynap Nud, Lord of the Underworld, and I apologize because I probably butchered that. It was said during the Yule season that the Wild Hunt was particularly active, arriving with the snowstorms while their corpse hounds bayed in front of the pack looking for prey. Not exactly the kind of holiday spirits most people want to meet. Yeah, I'll take the Grinch any day of the week. I love the story we started with, actually, tracing some of the stranger, non-Christmas beliefs associated with St. Andrew's Day. Same, love it. Gotta love Romania, man, mixing the holiday season with increased vampiric activity. Exactly. I like how it's increased. Like, you have this ambient level, and it's like, oh, holiday season. Right? It's a given that there are already vampires out there. (laughs) But they're more active during the holiday season, so be extra careful tonight, kids. Bring some extra garlic bulbs for your friends. And here's an amulet of negative plane protection. And two scrolls of protection from evil. And five gold rings of fireballs to blast away the undead creatures that plague the countryside. You know, Max, I've always wanted us seeing five gold rings into a podcast. Very nice. Your life is fulfilled. In a small way. Hey, so let's get into some of those other darker occult-like aspects of the Christmas holidays, shall we? Lead on. Let's talk about... 
sacrifice. Right. That escalated quickly. Are we not jumping the gun a bit? You'd think, but many of the Christmas traditions stem from neo-pagan sacrificial rituals that became less bloody over the centuries, which is a good thing, I'd wager, because who wants things more bloody? Romanian vampires, for one. But I guess nobody wants to be sacrificed to Odin or some old bloody god. True. Many of the sacrifices were to ensure prosperity, good health, a positive new year, the return of spring, the sun especially. The return of the sun was huge because we need El Sol for things to grow, so we can eat them. And many of the winter rituals or festivals involve fire, that miniature sun calling to its larger sibling in the heavens to return and vanish the winter darkness. Like a plea or sacrifice to the sun, but also the ideas of good fortune, good luck, good health. And some sacrifices were to specific entities or gods. Some were to the universes or the general powers that be, the seasons, nature per se. A plea for good things across the board for the coming year. Did you come across any specific rituals? I did, yeah. An interesting one is an early morning hunt by a group of young lads known as the Wren Boys. The Wren Boys. Sounds like some kind of Renaissance boy band. Yeah, I'm sure we saw them at the Texas Renaissance Festival. Uh, they had all the hits back then. The Wren Boys were a group of young lads and they'd be up really early, well before the sun came up. Bundled against the cold with soot smudged faces, and they were all carrying cressets, small oil lamps to banish the darkness. And the boys would make their way out of their towns or villages and head into the countryside, into the stark snow-covered winter fields. Santa doesn't like it when you're up that early, actually. Known fact. True, true. But the Wren boys weren't looking for Santa's blessing. They would roam far, beating at the hedgerows with cudgels and branches, trying to catch sight of the small bird that gave them their name. So they're looking for a wren. Yeah, they were hunting the wren. For the first boy to see and kill a wren was crowned king for a day. They would triumphantly head back to the village with the lad who killed the wren in front, where the bird was placed with honor on a small bier bedecked with ribbons. They would sing nonsense songs and go from house to house with the wren at the front of the cavalcade. What were they looking for? As the boys went back into town, growing raucous and loud as the sun rose on Christmas morning, the doors would open at each house and the housewife would give the Wren boys a present, a tankard of ale they would pass around, fresh bread they'd share, or hot cider. Now in return, the king would pluck a small feather from the Wren and hand it to the housewife who had gifted them. And what did the feather represent? The killing of the wren and the passing out to each household of its feathers was meant to bring good fortune, good health, all the good things to the village. But why specifically were they going after the wren? Such a beautiful little bird, lovely song. In Latin, the wren is called Regulus, little king. I read that. And in German, the wren is called Zankonig, or hedge king. For whatever reason, the wren was very adored or idolized. And it was for that reason that the wren boys went out on those early Christmas mornings to hunt it. Because the wren was held in such high regard, made it a candidate worthy of being sacrificed. It was a plea to the old gods, old powers, to the universe, for luck and health and prosperity. Ah, uh, I get you. Like, sacrificing a chicken wouldn't have meant as much. Yeah, you know, the yard bird ate that tough to hunt, seeing as people raise them and all. They are tasty, though. For sure. And the sacrificing of the wren was just one in a long line of animal sacrifices to the season. Most of the sacrifices were animals that were the embodiment of strength or mystical powers. The boar, the bull, the horse. Large animals, powerful. Yeah, and these animals were not easily replaced, Max. Just think about how much having a horse or cow or hell, even a pig meant to certain families. For many, having that sort of large livestock was a sign of vast wealth. 
So the sacrifice was a huge deal, yeah? Of course. By sacrificing such a large beast, the universe had to take notice. And of course, people would eat the flesh of these creatures, don their skins, etc., to share in the animal's strength and power. Ah, so like the berserker or skinwalker? To a much milder extent, but yeah. And, you know, Max, like we say... That's a podcast for another day. I mean, we talked about it a little bit in the werewolf episode, but... Mm-hmm. We will expound on that. Yes. And let's focus on horses for a bit, because for a horse to be sacrificed, like we said earlier, was a huge deal. Because the horse was an animal that served multiple uses, transportation, tilling the fields, prestige, that sort of thing. Absolutely. British farmers used to bleed horses on St. Stephen's Day, which they thought cleansed the animals, bleed but not kill. Okay, now where did that tradition come from? Seems a bit dangerous. Good question. And it's believed that tradition stems from those mead-swilling conquerors, the Vikings. Makes sense. Britain had long years of Viking rule. For sure. The Vikings, ready to celebrate midwinter feasts, would crowd into their chieftain's hall with barrels of mead and bags of grain, the finest meats and cheeses, ready to party. But before they did, they would sacrifice their horses before the altar of the All-Father, Odin. That guy again. Always causing trouble. Mm-hmm. So they'd gather the blood in bowls, sprinkle some of it around the pedestal at the image of Odin, pass the bowl around and drink from it. And then it was party time. Time to get your meat on and your turkey leg on. Basically all the foods at quality rent fairs around the world. I'm all for party time. Minus the horse killing. Sounds like a good time all around. Yeah, it's not cool. I imagine some axe throwing is involved, maybe some rhyming by the local scalds. Tread carefully when partying with hard-drinking Vikings, I always say. Especially where animal sacrifice is involved. Wise advice. So, Max, again, this is the ritual from where the bleeding of the horses on St. Stephen's Day in England stem from. And that bleeding of the horses is where the tradition of the Hodening horse originates. So, Hodening horse. Is it like a hobby horse or something? It does kind of sound like a hobby horse. And it's believed that the hobby horse descends from the Hodening horse. But first things first. The ritual is called Hodening. And again, it's a British rite where a man would dress up as a horse called the Hoden and parade through the streets of his town or village. And people would follow and bestow gifts to the Hoden horse, such as sweets, money. And in return, the Hoden would bestow luck upon the giver. The Hoden, by the way, was done up to be very sinister looking. Sometimes they used horse skin that was shaped into a hood, but they often used a real horse skull with candles in the eye sockets and the jaw was rigged up so that it could snap shut. So not a traditional Christmas hobby horse at all. Doesn't sound very Christmassy. Where does the term hodening itself come from? Some say it's connected to the hood, or hoden the person acting as a hodening horse wore, while some historians believe that hoden is directly linked to the name of the Norse god who demanded horse sacrifice, Odin. That guy again. Causing all sorts of bloody mischief. He's lucky he has such a cool, hammer-wielding, frost-giant fighting son. True that. There's also a Welsh version, yes, Max, Catherine Zeta-Jones Welsh, where the horse is called Mari Lloyd, very close to the Hodening horse. Okay, ready for a story that will warm your cold, devious heart? I am. Tell us then, please. It was well known throughout the world that during the Christmas season, the walls between what could and could not be are particularly thin. The winter season, brimming with magic, was a time when the future could be revealed. But meddling with the primal magics of that primal season 
could be dangerous, as a tale from Lancashire shows. A parish priest, a small, odd bookish man, who tended his flock with a passionless yet business-like sense of duty, yearned for knowledge beyond what the good book taught him. The occult fascinated him, and old rites and rituals were the true kernels of knowledge he desired. His only companion was an old man, a local herbalist who didn't mind his odd habits even odder questions. Would this plant poison a person? Or would this herb grow in a witch's garden? The man's knowledge of plants fascinated the priest, and the old herbalist was glad for companionship beyond the flowers and plants of his carefully tended garden. Once his flock had gone home after Mass on Christmas Eve, the priest took the herbalist aside and asked him if he wished to see a Christmas miracle. Would he like to see all the folk that were going to die in the coming year? For according to the lore the priest kept, the ghosts of those villagers who would not live out the year paraded around the church at midnight. The herbalist readily agreed, for in his knowledge of plants, he could make talismans to protect them from whatever the night held. So they made their way to the back of the church, near the small graveyard on church grounds, where they waited for midnight to arrive. Armed with charms of St. John's wort, holly, bay leaf, mountain ash, all potent forces against the powers of darkness. Minutes rolled by as midnight passed. The single taper burning in the church dwindled, and the moon continued its trek across the sky. A bell tolled, and a wind descended on them, and the pair saw shadows walking in front of them, too dark to recognize at first gasped as they suddenly beheld the town mayor, a farmer, a local midwife, and a smaller figure they couldn't recognize, some poor child. The priest smiled tightly at the old herbalist who gasped, hand to his mouth and eyes wide with horror. The priest whirled around to see an image of himself, the last spectral walker in the line who locked eyes with him and smiled a secret smile before fading into the mist. The curious priest died within the year. The old herbalist confirmed the tale and bemoaned pair meddling with the magic of the season and forces beyond mortal ken. I think I probably rather not know that sort of thing. Same here, my man. Ignorance is bliss. Some people just have to know, though. Control freaks. So let's get into the lighter aspect of the Christmas season. Well, <laughs> I guess lighter in comparison to animal sacrifice. <laughs> I'd like to talk about some of the spirits that became active during the season. Christmas spirits. I gotcha. Yes. Not the spirit of the season, but spirits of the season. You follow? I do indeed. Lead on. First, let's touch on the Christmas lads. Another medieval boy band? I'm pretty sure they toured with the Wren boys, didn't they? Undoubtedly. So the Christmas lads, sometimes called the Yule lads, were actually 13 trolls Mm. that came down from the mountains to ruin Christmas for Icelanders. Sounds very Grinchy. You're a mean one. Mr. Grinch. Now, these lads were the sons of Grilla, an ancient she-troll who loved to feast on children. On Christmas Day, before cockcrow, they would invade homes and wreck the place, steal the good food, take the gifts, and worst of all, steal children. Ah, child stealers. That worst sort of troll. And of course, trolls bringing extra kids to your house were just as bad. (laughs) This might be worse. But the tales also say they only took the bad children. 
So gotcha. Parents have been using Boogeyman for eons to make their kids behave. So no surprise there. Be good or the Christmas lads will take you. Not traumatizing at all. You might be eaten. <laughs> Another troublesome group of characters were the Kalikansari, Greek goblins who descended into town and would creep down the chimneys to ruin the holiday. They would spoil the food, pinch the children, generally make the house unlivable. And once Christmas is over, they returned to the mountains and woods. Did they steal the kids as well? No, some believe they were spirits of the dead, actually. Jealous of the joy that came with the season. So just ruining the mood. But the Greeks kept the Kalikansari away by keeping the Christmas fire burning all through the season, blocking the chimney as a way into the house. I think that's a sound move. I mean, who wants a burned butt? The other way they kept the goblins out was to hang a pig's jawbone in the fireplace. Any port in the storm, Max? Any others you hear about? Yes, Frau Gouda. Frau Gouda. Hmm, German? Yes, well, Austrian. Same thing. And Frau Harka in the Mecklenburg region in northeastern Germany, where my great-grandparents came from. Oh, fancy. Yeah, so she was a hag, an old Germanic goddess, really, who would come to villages during the 12 nights of Christmas, but especially on Christmas Eve with a pack of spectral hellhounds. Yikes. Like a Germanic wild hunt. Too bad Gerald of <laughs> Rivia is not there to deal with them. <laughs> exactly. In fact, she was supposed to be the wife of Odin, according to some of the stories. Oh, wow. And Odin was considered the leader of the Wutendahir, or the Raging Army, which was their version of the wild hunt. Jeez, those Germans need to settle down. Just drink some steins of good brew, my German friends, and, you know, ignore the Raging <laughs> Army. So... She and her pack would go to each door in town, and the first home she found with the door open, mm -hmm. well, she'd order one of her dogs into the home. They would slip in and sit by the fire. But listeners out there, don't think you're safe just because you don't have a fireplace, because in the modern stories, they're just as happy sitting by a heater or a radiator. Mm-hmm. Wow. See, the lottery Labrador never does that. <laughs> so back to the spectral hounds, uh, would they attack people? If the dog is left alone, all would be well. But if someone tried to dislodge the dog or shoo it away, Gouda's puppy would tear the person to pieces. Or, in a slightly less violent version of the story, just bring bad luck and illness. Still bad things. Uh, so, Max, can they be killed? Yes and no. So, people have attempted to kill the canines, but they are spirit dogs. If it's killed, the dog transforms into a rock that returns to life every midnight as a dog. It doesn't matter if the rock is removed from the home, the dog returns howling at midnight. Every howl is an individual curse directed at the family in the house. And the curses are illness, accidents, general disasters. Jeez, these dogs are serious. All the bad things. You know, the $64,000 question, how did you banish it? You couldn't. The curse had to be played out. And the only one with the power to remove these curses and the dog was Frau Gouda. Mm -hmm. But she only performs the curse removal services on Christmas Eve. Well, that would put a damper on the season. That's for damn sure. I just abandoned the house, like go to the mother-in-law's with the kids or some such. Who knows? Maybe the dog would follow. So this would only happen if you left the door open? According to the lore, yeah. Although, a grain offering would also not go amiss. What lessons can we learn from this, kids? Lock your doors, lest the hounds of misfortune come in and ruin your year. It's funny. It's like Frau Gata is punishing those who are lax with home security. Man, I'm a habitual door locker. Annoys a wife to no end. I'm pretty good about it, too. You also have two big dogs guarding the place, so... True. So let's talk about a few of the kinder spirits of the season. About time. Okay, so 
Ofana is an Italian Christmas spirit who wrote a broom, delivered presents to good kids, and coal to bad kids. Mm -hmm. Unless you lived in Sicily. Then she just left you a stick in your stocking instead of coal. Kind of a mix between a witch and Santa. Sort of. She sorts the night skies on Epiphany Eve, which is January 5th. Ah, so dropping the gifts off after Christmas. Score! <laughs> Italians know how to extend the giving season. It also keeps the kids being good for another couple weeks. You don't want the coal or the stick in your stocking. You know, the other thing, at least she's not beating the hell out of the kids with the stick, right? So that's kind of a win. Next on the list is Kolyada. So in Slavic lands, she's a white-robed maiden who travels the lands in her magical sleigh during the season. Kids sing her carols, and she leaves them treats and gifts. This reminds me very much of the White Witch in Narnia. She probably has a nasty dwarf driving the sleigh and, you know, is handing out Turkish delight all willy-nilly. Some Turkish delight? Yes, please. <laughs> Turkish delight, nice. That old-school Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe cartoon from the 70s made Turkish delight sound so amazing. I finally ran across some as a grown-ass man. Uh, not my bag, Max. True. Turks need some better desserts. Uh-huh. It's too much like fruitcake for my taste, but... Okay, so there's also Perta, also known as Berta, who traditionally... Good pronunciation. <laughs> ...who traditionally appears during the 12 days between Christmas and Epiphany. Now, she rewards the hardworking, honest, good people with gifts and good fortune. Pretty standard. Nice. But her punishment is pretty brutal. Hmm. Her preferred punishment is ripping open your stomach and replacing your innards with garbage, mud, rocks, and straw. Give me the good fortune, please. Again, that's a punishment totally not fitting the crime. Totally. All right, Max. So I want to shift gears from some of the perhaps lesser known spirits of the holiday season to some of the perhaps lesser known days of your magic, shall we say? All right. Sounds good. Lead on. So let's talk about Martinmas, St. Martin's Day on November 11th. In certain parts of Europe, this was the official start of winter. Also called the Feast of St. Martin, the day was marked with the slaughter of animals, drinking of wine, and feasting. St. Martin is also the patron of vintner and wine. My kind of day, feasting and drinking. Mm -hmm. Very Thanksgiving-esque, the party before the party. Love it. Now, St. Lucia's Day was celebrated in the far north, Norway and Sweden. Her day fell on December 13th or the 21st and marked the beginning of Christmas. And so tell us about St. Lucia. Well, she's also known as St. Lucy. She was a Christian martyr who died during the persecutions by Diocletian. So, the rite was repeated by the daughters of households in the far north, and it was a recreation of St. Lucia bringing food to Christians hiding undergrounds in catacombs. Now, she was able to do this by using a candle-lit wreath around her head, which left her hands free to carry the much-needed food. So, the daughters of the house wore a lit wreath while bringing food to the family. Correct, yeah, just so. The daughters would sing as they delivered food to the household, cookies, buns, and other sweets, but her day is not only that. It's a Christian festival of light, a banishment of darkness, of the forces that held spring at bay. And in the far north, towns would have processions of torchlight in hopes that the torchlight would bring back the light that had dwindled during the winter season. Very interesting. And her name, Lucia, actually means light, right? Correct. Yes, sir. Now, under the day of solstice, which came on December 21st, this was a day of dancing as a way to defy the darkness that was so prevalent during the deep, dark winter months. That's a theme. Banishing the darkness, keeping the light of hope alive. The dark is scary, Max. The dark, as we know, is where the monsters be. So, on the day of solstice, the sword dance was performed. Sounds dangerous. And kind of awesome. Yeah. 
So the dancers, six in all, would dance in a circle with measured steps moving from left to right. Imitating the path of the sun and using their swords, they would trace complex patterns and movements, and these moves would culminate as the dancers would extend their blades and form a six-pointed star, the symbol of the life-giving sun. Another rite, another ritual that was performed in hopes the sun would take notice and come back again. So interesting. Totally. This yearning that the life-giving sun take notice during the darkest months. So let's move on to Christmas Eve, Max. In certain parts of the far north, the belief was held that December 24th was a night for the spirits of the dead to return to their old homes and bask in the warmth of their hearths once more. After the living would eat, small foods would be left for their ancestors so they too could partake in the bounty of the season. Leaving food for the dead is a custom that's still practiced all over the world. Dia de los Muertos is the first thing that comes to mind. Absolutely. And I gotta admit, it's kind of comforting knowing that I still might be able to get my drink on and my snack on once I level up. Same here. All right. Now on to New Year's Eve. Yeah. Speaking of getting your drink on. That's for sure. Okay. So in certain parts of Europe, it was believed that in order for the new year to prosper, the old year had to be done away with. As in killed? Yep. Or buried or driven out of town. And this was done to a straw dummy that was given the name of Death. Now, this dummy was paraded through the town and then buried or burned or drowned in a stream. This straw dummy was a stand-in for the old year. And once this was done, the new year could be brought in safely. Better than an actual sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I can see how people would kind of derive satisfaction in seeing the old year banished, especially if it was a bad year. Agreed. Now, Max, on to the twelfth night also known as Epiphany Eve. And as the name suggests, it takes place on the last day of the 12 days of Christmas. So what's up with the 12th night? Well, besides the continued merrymaking in parts of Western England, it marked the time when many farmers took to their orchards to partake in a bit of wassailing, good health, good fortune. Sounds fun, and I've heard the word, but what is wassailing? So traditionally, wassail is a cider drink, and it's an important part of wassailing, a kind of caroling ritual that was meant to ensure a good apple harvest. There was also a wassail practice of going from house to house and singing, offering, and receiving gifts. And this was the origins of Christmas caroling. Okay, back to the apple orchard version of wassailing. The whole point of the farmers going into their orchards on the twelfth night was that they wanted to ensure good fortune for their apple trees. Love me some apple cider. You and me both, my man. Especially when you drop some sake in there. Just a nice, crisp <laughs> apple cider sake bomb. Oh, delicious. But we digress. Yeah, as we often do. Okay, Max. It was believed that the apple trees housed their own spirits, and the farmers believed it was up to them to awaken the spirits so that when spring arrived, the trees were ready to bear fruit. And how did they do that? More merrymaking, quite honestly. They'd sing and dance around the tree, place bread and salt and cakes on the tree branches, and then they'd sprinkle the tree with cider, all in hopes that this little ritual would awaken the slumbering spirit inside the apple trees themselves. It's amazing how much comfort we humans take from our rituals. It gives us a sense of power, I suppose. Makes us active participants in our daily lives as opposed to powerless bystanders, I reckon. You know, plus it's fun to drink and dance around apple trees in winters with friends. Amen. That's right. I forgot how much of an apple tree dancer you are. <laughs> so, uh, guys and gals, all you lovely people, that's going to do it for us tonight. And as always, thanks so much for spending your valuable time and, uh, you know, your holiday season with Max and I. Yes, thanks so much. 
We hope you enjoyed your time with us and hope you'll stick around as the new year beckons. As always, spread word about our little podcast. Go on over to Apple or wherever you listen and give us that pleasant five-star review. Santa will reward you. Yes, he will. That pleasant, much-needed five-star review. Tell your friends, everybody. All that. Also, give us a shout on Twitter. Visit us at nightmarespodcast.net. Check out our Facebook page. The music for this holiday episode is by the lovely and talented Teresa Joy. Find and follow her at Viobrite, V-I-O-B-R-I-T-E, on both Facebook and Instagram. And people, as always, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.